Welcome to another episode of the Leaders in Education podcast, the official podcast for the Charlevoix-Emmett Intermediate School District, featuring voices in education. Today I'm talking with Dr. Kehlani Dunsmore. Dr. Dunsmore is recognized at the state and federal level for her leadership and expertise in literacy and teaching, and for supporting leaders taking the actions necessary to improve literacy instruction. Kehlani, thank you for talking with me today. Morning. Thank you, Mike. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, I have lived on Beaver Island for the past 11 years and taught in the school there. So I'm excited to be part of working with Sharm um, because this is my home community. Yes, yeah, so great. And, and I look forward to digging into some of that uh, in, a, in a little bit. Um, I want to start uh, by asking you if you could share a little bit about what motivated you to dedicate a career to literacy and improving literacy instruction. So um, this will date me, but this is my 32nd year in education. Um, I started as a first and second grade team room teacher. It was a Mm. multi-A classroom. And I really felt like I was developing skills in supporting these, you know, the young, the early readers in in, in developing literacy and being excited and engaged Mm -hmm. about learning to read and to write. Um, it was actually my first teaching experience was at a, it was a public school, but it was an MSU PDS school, professional development school. And we had oh. those. And yeah. what was really unique is we had researchers from the university, professors, graduate students, and everyone was there to sort of study and understand <laughs> their practice. Right. So we all had like problems of practice and questions. Um, and it was a wonderful apprenticeship because it wasn't a problem that you were had questions about your work. It was expected and normal. We would videotape ourselves teaching. We would talk to one another. Um, But I was a little person on the totem pole. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I found myself um, uh, at one point, uh, four days before school started, suddenly found myself, um, boom, I was a middle school teacher, not on a baby. Okay. Um, and so I found myself uh, working with 12 and 13 year olds in a very traditional middle school setting. And uh, the teachers would regularly talk about, you know, these the problems these kids had with reading. Mm. And they would say, you know, if those kindergarten teachers, if those first grade teachers would do their jobs, then we wouldn't <laughs> have these problems. Well, that was me. It was yeah. like, wait a minute, you know, not very many days ago, that was me. And I didn't know how to support students in seventh grade, eighth grade who were, you know, reading at a second grade level. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know right. how right. they got that way. And, and I didn't know how to help them. Um, and it was very, um, really disempowering because I felt like I had all these students who were struggling and I, I really lacked the resources. I remember by middle school, of course, kids who struggle with reading, they become disengaged, mm-hmm. they become behavior <laughs> issues often. Um, and I remember um, a kid, I had him stay after and because he'd been kind of acting on class, cute kid, clowning around. And I said, you know, how can I help you? And he, he was looking down and then he looked up and he said, I guess if you could teach me how to read, I'd really appreciate oh, that. Wow. And it just, I mean, I think about him all the time. Um, and I think about those students who are on the margins, they're on the fringes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what prompted me to begin um, graduate coursework. I eventually ended up with a PhD and I've worked in university settings um, uh, at the National Council of Teachers of English as a fellow until a couple of years ago I was at the University of Chicago. Um, but my passion is really those kids in the end. So in all the different mm-hmm. roles I've had over the past years, um, it's really been about, it used to be about, okay, give me your kids. I can help <laughs> your kids. So working as 
uh, a reading specialist or then it was give me your teachers working mm. with kind of coaching and support with coaching. Um, but I really became really convinced that it really needs to be about looking at the system. So looking at the leadership practices, both at the building level and the district level, because it's not about an individual teacher or an individual kid. Right. It's about the systems we put in place. Um, and that's really where my passion is. I, I often think about those kids, the one who said, I guess if you could help me to read. I think right. about, you know, working and I've worked in urban settings and rural settings and you you know, you look at the trajectory of kids, you look at the number of kids in the juvenile detention system who have um, reading and learning issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's really been my passion is how do we create systems um, and structures that really support all kids, that help teachers to feel effective, to feel confident, not disempowered as I did, mm -hmm. to have problems of practice that are not a problem, but we have supports and structures to help teachers develop. That That's my passion. So had you not been forced to make that move to middle school, none of this, this might not have happened. It might right? not have, because ironically, I was actually <laughs> in a master's program in math at the time. <laughs> so I was studying children's mathematical development. Okay. Um, that was at the days when the new NCTM standards came out and Deborah Ball was at Michigan State at the time. She's now at the University of Michigan. And we had all these wonderful people studying elementary mm -hmm. children's uh, um, mathematical knowledge, and that's what I was really fascinated by. But you that's know, moving great. to middle school is yeah raised a lot of questions for me because I wanted to be a good teacher, right? And right. I just didn't feel like I was prepared to even have the right lens or framework. There were lots of people that was at the time where people were like whole language and yeah. phonics. So the debates we talk about today. You know, we're there and it's very easy to kind of demonize, you know, but I felt like I was doing the best I knew how. I knew mm -hmm. I wasn't doing something because some ideology told me I just didn't have the knowledge and the skills. Mm -hmm. So when you look look at your work over the past few decades, um, are there any projects? or oh, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't the talk. Uh, so when you look at your work over the past few decades, are there any other projects or experiences um, that you're particularly proud of? Okay, so I always have to start by, so I've spent um, three years uh, teaching in Beaver Island. So during mm -hmm. all of COVID, when everything shut down, I was one of those teachers who was trying to figure out remote learning with, let's see, I've taught, uh, I think I taught K through four. Yeah, one year I oh. had a second, third, fourth grade, then I had a K1, I had a two, three, four. Um, and it was, you know, I loved being Miss Kaylotti back. Mm -hmm. I've worked in schools, you know, all these years being, you know, going in and modeling instruction and coaching and working with teachers and principals. Mm -hmm. But it was it was really refreshing to be back in the classroom, um, really having my own class. And I've been doing that. Um, it was like my dream job because I was working with kids. And then yeah. last year I was there, I was working with kids half time and then working with schools um, in this kind of work we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. So that was really both um, exciting to kind of be back in the classroom. I think a lot of people who do work in schools, um, they often lose the groundedness of, you know, what it means to right. be working with kids and not be able to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and, you know, and dealing with all the different clamors, because it's not just um, doing best practice. It's also doing things that engage students and make, um, you know, and, and families mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, make school about safety and fun and joy. And so I have to say that's been 
Um, you know, my work with kids, I love the work I do with teachers and principals in school because I feel like it's making a difference for many kids. But right. I love when I get to interact. I was just in a classroom um, the other day um, modeling some writing instruction. And I love walking through the schools because the kids are like, Miss Kaylani. <laughs> so it's lovely to be um, having that intersection. And that's been right. kind of the sweet spot is what I look for. Um, I had... I don't know, six, seven years ago, a $4.6 million innovative approach to literacy grants. So working with rural schools in five states. Um, and that's sort of been the heart of um, mm -hmm. the foundation for the work we're going to talk about, where we're really looking at creating the kind of changes that can sustain learning for all kids, but always at the heart of it is wanting kids to find joy and safety and acceptance and a love of um, you know, literacy, reading and writing, um, and to feel confident and successful. So the things that I'm most proud of are where I feel like I'm doing good work that mm -hmm. actually makes kids feel um, engaged and connected. That's great. And I really love the way you described the uh, intersection between your research and professional work with adults and being in a school and developing those relationships with students, because we know that's significant when it comes to students being able to learn. Um, and even this story about the boy you mentioned, uh, the young, the, in your first experience, um, that just wanted to learn how to read. So I just really am fascinated by everyone's stories and yours is, is certainly one to be fascinated by. Um, for years, there's been this discussion about the best way to teach children to read. And, and even recently, um, there's been a lot of discussion about what's called the science of reading. What, why do you think Kehlani, that we are so divided uh, when it comes to reading? So I, I think there's a kind of a several different strands in this. What I find, though, is often when we sit down with people um, and have a conversation, we're less divided than mm. we think. It's very easy, though, to kind of create um, polarization. And, and I have been doing this work for a long time. So I said, you know, I started this work you know, when there was the whole language kind of right. debates and wars and there were people <laughs> that would come to the table. And I remember, um, you know, I just advised a, a school, they were using um, invented spelling. And I said, you know, you really shouldn't use that term because when people hear it, I said, I'm gonna tell you, like 30 years ago, I was in a room and, you know, someone stood up and said, we believe in right and wrong. We believe <laughs> in children learning, um, that there's absolutes and when you, we don't want them to invent spelling. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> So there was this anger and this resistance because what they heard in terms of invented spelling um, was about us saying to kids, just make it up as you go along. Mm -hmm. And so what I said to these teachers just last week, I said, you know, really want to use the term um, phonics based spelling because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And helping parents understand that I am not just going to let your children uh, think that they can spell any way they want. But when we're doing what I call sloppy copies with young children, when we're doing our sloppy copies, we just want to get our ideas out there. And then mm -hmm. we go back through and we look at it and we see, did we capitalize? Did we put punctuation in? Do we have spaces? Did we, are we using, um, are we looking at uh, up on our word wall to find those words that we've been learning? And now we need to go through and we need to correct the spelling. Okay. Um, but the first time through, we just want to get our ideas out there and we want to sound them out. Um, because often when we stop and we have kids say you have to spell every word right, you know, here's mm -hmm. your strategy, making sure it's spelled right, go look at your word list, um, then they forget what they're communicating. And I know I do the same thing. Um, 
you know, Michael, when we were even talking about this, you gave me some prompts that we were going to talk about and I jotted it down. I just needed <laughs> to get my ideas out. Right. And then I go through and I correct it to make it more coherent. So, you know, the first point I want to make is that often maybe in education we use jargon or we don't unpack things. And I think sometimes there's divisions because people are not engaged in the same conversation. And so, um, you know, there's a piece around it, around thinking about the science of reading. And, you know, we have the legislature here in Michigan um, kind of promoting particular things. And, you know, the, the conversation needs to be, it's not that I don't want kids to learn how to decode. I absolutely want to teach phonics instruction. But what I know is that phonics is only a piece of it. Sure, so once right. you can sound out all the words, you actually need to have the kind of comprehension strategy. So you're making sense of it. And, you know, I have, we'll have kids who can sound every word out. They're a fluent reader. And I, I often um, think of particular little guys when I'm thinking of this. And I think of a little guy that I taught that um, we were doing some practice in preparation for the MSTEP, the standardized assessment in Michigan um, that starts at grade three. And um, the, the ability to, the questions, there's questions around, you know, what is the author, what's the argument the author's making? Mm -hmm. And it's very common for students, particularly third, fourth uh, grade students, to want to say what they think and not what the author thinks. So that idea of inferencing, you know, mm -hmm. looking at right. closely, looking at the text. So this student was a very fluent reader, but he was getting really low scores on questions around inferencing because he didn't understand how to take perspective of the author. And I remember him saying, well, that's just stupid. I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's your opinion. But what is the author? Well, that's just stupid. And so, I mean, this is sort of a, a, a broad example, right. but... Phonics is a component of effective literacy, and there are multiple components. So there's there's this piece about are we in the same conversation? And then mm -hmm. there's the other piece. People talk about teachers not being well prepared. And I would say that is absolutely the case. Um, I've been a university professor. I've taught undergraduate and graduate. I've been a researcher. I've been a fellow. I've worked for foundations. I do work in schools all the time. But I can tell you, nobody doesn't want teachers to be well prepared. Um, but what we have to understand is that when these young kids, I was one of them, graduate, you know, in Michigan, you only have three classes right. and that's right. like, you know, that meets, uh, you know, once or twice, once, once a week for three hours or twice a week for an hour and a half for a, for a marking period. That's a class. And you have three classes to become certified as an elementary teacher. I'm certified K through eight and I had three classes on literacy. Um, and it's just not sufficient and to, to go and then teach for the next 32 years in all different contexts. Um, so then it requires schools to put in place, but you hire a brand new person out and you dump them in the classroom. Right. And, you know, there's sometimes, you know, lack of resources to provide support. There's not many PD days built in. You go to other industries, you know, I've always, almost always where I've worked had to pay to go to conferences myself <laughs> um, and take days off often. Um, and we look at other industries where we're putting people in complex roles and we provide a different level of PD. So when people say, well, teachers don't have to teach reading, that's not a criticism of teachers. That's the reality of what it means to be in educational right. systems where there's often inadequate support. And that's why we've invested, you know, we're investing a lot of money in providing literacy coaching, providing professional development. And so when you say the kind of critique around the science of reading, one is, I think we're not often in the same conversation. And second, I would agree that we have often had 
lack of um, support, instructional models, resources, professional learning for teachers um, in, in the kinds of things that they need. And so the science of reading is appropriately paying attention to you know, the need for teachers to be making sure that we're doing that appropriate um, and explicit phonics instruction. Okay. Um, but sometimes people, when they hear the yes, but they're mm -hmm. thinking I'm just, you know, we're disagreeing with them. It's not a, I disagree with you. It's yes, but there are other components to become effective in literacy that we need to pay right. attention to as well. I really appreciate that perspective that, that we may be talking about the same thing, <laughs> or we're just having a different conversation. Uh, we're hearing what we want to hear perhaps sometimes. And, um, and so when I think about all that and, and, and the not, maybe not a divide then, but just maybe uh, all that's thrown up there is, is opportunities to, to create great learning environments and, and what needs to happen in terms of training and preparation and how we do this. What, what is your recipe for making sure that all children can learn to read? Yeah, and I wanna, I'm gonna tell you what's not a recipe and then I'll talk to you about what is. Okay. And so I was just yesterday on with a district and what they wanted was, okay, can you give us, you know, tell us which curriculum to buy. They really want me to, <laughs> <laughs> okay, which one should we buy? Yeah. And they said, and tell me how many minutes of these different things. So, you know, we look at, I've got a literacy framework that I, I can provide and say, okay, foundational skill instruction, where's that happening and what materials are you using? and and that shared reading interactive read aloud. So that's that grade level text, doing kind of close reading of grade level text. What about small group instruction where kids are getting targeted instruction in their areas of need and that writing kind of piece. Mm -hmm. And and they, they <laughs> there was a, a really a lot, well, just tell us like how many minutes of phonics instruction a day? How many minutes of, and and so there's there's the, the tendency, whether it's school boards or parents, they want a really quick direct Kind of when they hear science of reading, they think that there is something that says, buy this, you know, kind right. of buying our way out of problem, and do exactly this. Um, but the reason teaching reading is complex is, um, you know, just like when we go into a doctor, there may be, you know, five people with the same symptoms, but they have other things going on with their body. And so that's where a good doctor would have a conversation with the, you know, the person. So, you know, someone who's struggling with diabetes, if they also have high blood pressure, they give them a different drug than if okay. they have other issues. Um, and, and so what we want to think about is, and so I gave him the example, there's a really um, popular uh, program out right now um, that works on phonological awareness 15 minutes a day and it started as a kind of preschool K program but mm -hmm. you know now it's been so popular that kind of goes all the way up through the grades and you know and the question I ask is um, certainly you know that's a great program if what you're really looking at is uh, phonological awareness which is like the auditory the perceptual you know listening to spoken words and being able to rhyme them mm -hmm. you know if I say the word cat do you know what the you know, the beginning sound is um, cat and they can go and then at um, and and that's a great program. But what if your kids don't need rhyming help? Hmm. So, you know, a kindergarten program like when I was working often by January, 80 percent of my kindergartners can do all of that. So do I keep spending 15 minutes a day with all my students or do I say, OK, I'm going to move those students into something else and then work with just those four or five students in a small group on those areas that they need? Um, and the, the tendency is to want to um, find something that's very, very directive. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a need for kind of guidelines and flexibility, but what I want is very skilled teachers 
that really deeply understand are making decisions. Now, we, we need to make commitments as a system. Um, so what it's not is something that says we're going to do this for this, this many minutes and we're not going to vary it. Or we're going to do this program and stick to it. Um, mm -hmm. Now, um, there are some components to that. So I want to say what it's not is um, somebody can't tell you a script that you can do lockstep and all kids will read. Now, there are patterns of that. So there's some mm -hmm. things we know. So when I'm working with schools, I told you it used to be, okay, give me your kids. And it wasn't because I had the, the one right script. It's that I had a lot of tools, like in a toolbox. And so what you really want, again, now let's think about kind of a carpenter coming in to fix something. You know, you really want to be able to look at it and say, okay, I got a lot of tools in my toolbox. So let's figure out what's going on here. And let's, let's, I've learned, I learned to kind of ask the right questions to figure out, okay, now let's try this. Okay, I'm doing this for the next couple of weeks. This isn't working. Let's try something else. And I will say, so I have a PhD in literacy. Um, and when I was at Beaver Island Schools and I've been in this field for a long time, there were still students that I'd want to come to my colleagues about and say, oh, okay, this is what's going on. What do you think? You know, what would you suggest? What have you tried? I'm constantly learning and trying to figure things out and working with my colleagues. So, so the recipe um, in what we do in working with schools is I want to start with that literacy framework. So what are the core okay. components? You know, this is where, you know, science of reading, it's not just about phonics, but, but certainly phonics is included. So what are the foundational skills? Where are kids reading grade level texts? And people often get confused about that. They're like, well, they're reading two grades below. Why would I have them read grade level text? But the research is really interesting is that kids need time every day to read text at their level working on um, instructional areas of focus, but they also need to read those grade level texts, but not just like dumping them into it, but with scaffolding and support doing those repeated readings. We often call it shared reading, mm -hmm. um, where we're modeling things um, so that they're reading, they're getting support and then they develop fluency in those grade level texts and they accelerate faster. So a literacy framework is an agreement we make as a school. Here's the core components. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit what the school was asking me for, but it's not, it's about saying, so the guidelines, it might be uh, phonics instruction should be 15 to 30 minutes a day. Here's the materials that we're going to agree to. So, uh, you know, kind of what they're asking me is what we want. We want a literacy framework mm -hmm. that is school-wide. I don't want just every teacher kind of figuring it out themselves. I want us to know when we've got new teachers coming in, every teacher is going to put this in place. We get sample schedules. I ask for those schedules to be turned in and have a literacy leadership team kind of review and talk about them. And so the first thing to put us in place is really creating those agreement about what does effective instruction look like. And when I say shared agreement, that's really what I mean. It's not about um, somebody imposing on everyone else. It's about coming together and it's about creating this literacy framework. Usually the leadership team kind of works it together. I will mm -hmm. work with the leadership team and we decide these are the components that need to be in it. This is what effective research looks like. Okay, here's the curriculum we selected. So here's where it comes into play, deciding what's loose and what's tight. Are we going to give teachers a choice on which materials they use here? Do we need to use the curriculum materials? Um, what's going to be loose and tight? And then we create those shared agreements. And when I say shared agreements, um, I really mean giving it to the teachers and say, quickie, give feedback on it, but then we're going to shut it down. And I need you to agree. And sometimes I think of it almost like that formal handshake. My, my dad was a, uh, a UAW member for 38 years. Um, and so I think of those kind of formal agreements is that we're going to agree to this. We're not going to kind of go off and do our own. If you have disagreements, we're going to talk about them right here. Right. So if you think we shouldn't be doing some piece, let's talk about it. Let's work on it. But then we're committing to this. 
And then the next piece is really creating a plan um, where we're providing support. So that literacy okay. framework and then um, really creating an implementation plan. And so I look at eight to 12 weeks. Now with my camp and your schools, it's this year long plan. Mm -hmm. um, and what I, I mean, it's a really great continuous improvement process, but my critique on those kind of school improvements is we decide on something and then we get to the spring and go, oh darn, you know, mm -hmm. we didn't accomplish it. <laughs> and what we want is over the next eight to 12 weeks, we're gonna pick one, one, one initiative. Um, one thing that we're going to work on. So we've got our literacy framework. Okay, so we're all going to now focus on um, on small group instruction. Um, and, and then we're really going to think about how do we support teachers in implementing small group instruction for the next eight to 12 weeks. This is what we're doing. And before I go on, I feel like I've been kind of um, talking. I've got a couple other things that I like to do. So that literacy framework, we want to integrate initiatives. We shouldn't be having two, mm -hmm. three, four things together. We want to pull them together. Um, and I can talk about how to do that. But creating that implementation plan and, you know, providing that coaching support um, and professional development that aligns to it. But let me just pause, Mike, and see if that makes sense to you. And then we can talk further about some of those pieces. It does. And, and I really... So I, I, I think what you said earlier was that um, a lot of the requests you get are from folks that are saying, give us, tell us what curriculum or what text, what book or what, you know, uh, uh, vendor created uh, tool that we can use. They're looking for that direction. Is that because most of us educators don't have a rich experience or, around teaching reading? And, and so we're looking for that expertise and you're, what you're unpacking here is really taking a deep dive or a look at all the all the pieces around the classroom environment and and the systems in place. Um, so, it, so that was a question. So, are, do you think do you think you're getting those requests because of our lack of understanding of how to teach reading? That 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 is more more often the case. Two things. I think it's one that education, that teachers are really, really, really committed to the success of their students. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, first of all, we have to look at where it comes from. They want to do good. Um, and, and the hope is, is that um, we can find something that will help us do better. We know we're not. We know when, when we look at gaps, when I have gaps, when I have students who are struggling, um, when I work with teachers who have struggling students, it's really disempowering because they care about mm. kids. Nobody goes in right. <laughs> to deal with teaching and not get paid too well because you don't care about kids. Um, so one, it comes from a place of, is there something you can give us that will help us to do better? So that's the one place. And the mm -hmm. second um, is there's often this pressure to kind of quick fixes. Um, you know, boards want to spend the money. Right. We've had a bunch right. of my... I'm going to just be honest is that when all this money was poured into education during COVID, I was very uncomfortable with it because people suddenly had all this money mm -hmm. and they had to spend it very quickly. And what I often saw is it being spent on stuff because there aren't more bodies out there. <laughs> so it's being spent on stuff. Right. Um, and, and, you know, cause it's like all this money, but without the thoughtfulness. And so it's not that there aren't better curriculums, but, but some curriculums are better fit and suited to where your teachers are at. 
you know, how your day is structured, how, who your students are. And so there is certainly an expertise, but it's not just expertise about reading. It's an expertise about how to create systems and structures that best support teachers and kids. Um, because I will, I never recommend a single thing, but I'll say, okay, given who you are, who your kids are, you're telling me you have no professional development time. You're telling me that once the material, your money runs out for, um, you know, your ESSER funds runs out, you're telling me that you won't have any PD days built in. You're telling me that you have high teacher turnover. We're in a, a location, you know, when I work in parts of the country, there are, you know, high teacher turnover in places. Um, these are the ones I think you need to look at because um, they've got more structure, they've got sure. more scripts associated with it, they don't have a big expensive buy-in, the professional development is available virtually, it's more aligned, or you know, five other systems in your ISD are using this so that you can go observe and talk to one another. So there are solutions that are a better fit in terms of curriculum, but we always have to start with that literacy framework. And I do think there is um, a lack of deep expertise, not just in the teachers, but in the administrators, because in right. Michigan, right. you know, half of principals <laughs> don't have an elementary background. They have a secondary. Mm -hmm. So they're assigned to be in a K-1-2 building and they were a high school social studies teacher. Right. Um, school boards, you know, they may care because that's why they run for office, but they don't have that deep knowledge. And so I do think there is an expertise, but it's not just about reading. It's about how do we design systems, select materials that are better suited to our personal context. And so that's the kind of conversation I want to be in. Um, you know, it's it's really thinking about, you know, the, go back to the question when they asked me, like, should we be spending 15 minutes, 30 minutes on phonics? Right. Should we? I said, well, first of all, we got to know like where your kids are at. You know, we shouldn't be spending any minute on phonics if they're all like fluent. But, you know, I'll go into third grade classrooms and kids need an enormous amount of basic phonics instruction, and then other third grade classrooms are all fluent. So I can't give you a standard answer. What I can tell you is this is what kids need to know. And given your curriculum, some curriculums embed some of the phonics. Um, they do some direct instruction. They do some embedded in writing. Some of it, if you have bookworms, it's during the small group differentiated time, so it's differentiated. Right. Um, you know, it, it is that expertise, but not just about reading. So speaking of the conversation, uh, you're going to be having a conversation with uh, many of our elementary principals and teacher leaders uh, in the months to come uh, around this. Uh, can you describe the work that, that you're going to help us start? Yeah, so we always start with, I'm going to just start with sort of one piece is that um, if we think about the, let's think about Hollywood images of good teachers, they're always, they write, you know, they they put these movies on and there's one teacher that you know does this amazing job and like transform the schools or transform kids or mm -hmm. transform classrooms. And yes, many of them have been based on books, but you know, what I always want to point out is generally <laughs> these movies, by the time the movie has come out, that person is no longer teaching. They burnt out. Um, you know, there's some real classic examples that by the time you know, that particular woman, you know, uh, the movie about her came out, she was no longer teaching. And, and you know, yes, she worked a second job so she could get money for her kids. And that is wonderful that we've got these superhero people, but that's not what we should be looking for. We don't want superhero teachers. We want super systems. And I always start with that as my premise. So the premise is the goal is really to build that, not just human capital, which is about 
highly qualified, highly expert individual people. We do want that. And we know, you know, lots of people talk about the research that looks at the value of an individual teacher on students. But there's other research that looks at what we call social capital, which is when you take a low performing teacher and put them in a high performing system, mm -hmm. that impact of that teacher on student improvement or student achievement, you know, increases. So we want super systems. And if we recognize that, then the starting point is to say our goal is to create these shared agreements and to create the conditions that really balance ownership and accountability. And they are not in antagonism. They work mm -hmm. hand in hand. So I want teachers to own, have voice, have choice um, in, in the creation of the decisions they're making. But I also want accountability for putting these in place. And that's why I mentioned that before that loose and tight piece is that we have to decide what decisions are best made at the district or building or leadership level and what decisions are best made at the classroom level. Um, and so teaching phonics instruction really is um, a district building. This is a shared agreement. This is from research. It's not for individuals to opt in or out. We're going to select materials. We're going to look at it. We're going to regularly evaluate the effectiveness on those materials for who is it working for, who for who isn't. So, but the decision of what I'm going to do tomorrow in the classroom next week, that should be as a teacher looking at their data, mm -hmm. making decisions, you know, identifying which materials, which books, um, which texts, which which tools um, are best suited for these kids. So the first is to really understanding we're doing a system. The second is, you know, I mentioned that literacy framework. So what we're going to be doing um, in this kind of network is making sure every school has a literacy framework. They've developed shared agreement around it. Schools will often tell me, actually, I kid you not, I had a school last week who told me, well, we already have one of those. We have this, it's 44 page document. And I'm like, I'm telling you what. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a committed teacher. I'm not reading through your 44 page yeah. document. We need like a one page framework where we give feedback on it. We make commitment to it. We understand, you know, what's the materials we have available. Mm -hmm. um, and then we create that. We're going to actually create an eight to 12 week um, inquiry cycle. And I have found that, you know, eight to 12 weeks is long enough to make change, but short enough that people don't sort of put it off and eventually right. we get to going to right. gather data on implementation. So every school is going to have an eight to 12 week implementation plan. And we're going to have data, not just on student achievement, not just on teacher performance, but data on the effectiveness of the coaching support, the, um, and I don't mean like evaluating a coach, but I mean, do teachers feel like they have the PD support, the coaching support to implement what they're asked to implement? Um, and, and so it's really about, you know, this is our inquiry cycle. This is our implementation plan, building principal district. Does this have the supports needed for teachers to feel increasingly confident? Um, does it have the collaborative culture so that they feel safe taking risks? Does it have the accountability? And I'll be honest, a lot of what I'm seeing is principals. It's not coaches, not coaching. It's um, systems not creating that shared agreement from the beginning and principals not knowing how to provide that accountability support. Um, you know, they will often say, okay, the coach does that. Mm, no, um, because a typical part of the change process is resistance. Um, and again, it's not because people don't are trying to be bugaboos. Um, mm -hmm. I can tell you, you know, teachers go in to do good work, but if they don't understand what they're asked to put into place, they're not going to want to take those steps. Because I can tell you, if you tell me like small group instruction, if you tell me, okay, whole group instruction is not the most effective. We need to have kids in small groups. 
but I don't know how to do that. I've never run learning centers. I don't even know what high quality learning centers would look like. How do I have routines in place? What's going to engage students? How do I have this movement? I don't want to move in that direction. I'm going to be a resistance because I know that chaos is worse than what I'm doing. <laughs> and so we've got to create an accountability system for okay, we're gonna make this change, but we will provide you the support that helps you to get there. So those are those are the pieces that we're gonna be putting in place. And that's what it's gonna look like. It's gonna look like leadership support. It's gonna look like um, support for building that framework. And then how do we build ownership for it as well as balance accountability? How do we measure the effectiveness of what we're doing? Not in a year long, not just looking at student achievement, but measure effectiveness in giving teachers safety to take risks, but also accountability that's balanced with ownership. So really, rather than focusing on a curriculum or a program or even just professional learning, you're, you're suggesting a full core press on strengthening systems so that they can empower and, and lift the voices of the educators and, and address their needs. and. Um, as they address students' needs, right? So systemic look versus um, what often we see in education is is a um, you know a solution, a canned solution. Uh, you're talking about building the solution from within, right? Um, and so it's not as in opposition to purchasing things. It's that mm -hmm. before we can strategically purchase things, we actually have to have commitment to right. what our what's core instruction looks like. What does good instruction look like, and how it's assessed? I worked with a system last year who was involved in um, piloting two different programs, and they had sort of what I call the teacher-paid teacher as a default. Mm -hmm. They'd had an old, old, old system that nobody was really using. People were going online and buying stuff. And then they were going to pilot this. And the principal, when she approached me maybe over a year ago now, she said, maybe we should just wait a year. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, because how are you going to decide which curriculum? I said, you need a core framework. And so what we did is we put the literacy framework together. This is what core instruction is going to look like. It's going to have okay. these components in it. And then there were, there were groups that were um, piloting EL. There was a group that was piloting bookworms and a group that was doing the kind of whatever. And the, the, the commitment was no matter what you're doing, teacher pay teacher, EL, or bookworms, you are going to have small group instruction in place. You are going to have writing that reflects these characteristics we drew from the, the literacy of the Michigan um, essential um, instructional practices in early learning. And you are going to have a shared reading, interactive read aloud time. That's that close reading of grade level mm -hmm. text. You're going to have foundational skills. Now in EL and bookworms, foundational skills show up differently. The teachers who were doing the, what I call the teacher paid teacher, they still had to have foundational skills, which means we had to help them allocate and pull from the resources they need. So the first place is you know having a framework so that when we select by appropriate materials, um, we are selecting them that line with what we know research says best practice, that we know what our kids need, that we've looked at mm -hmm. that data and understand our kids and our learners. And then we look at kind of the, the day and the structure and, and who our teachers are, um, because we always want to do best practice, but best practice is always contextualized in a particular group of kids and people and places. Well, I'm looking forward to launching this work with you. And I know that our, our leaders in our region are also looking forward to having these conversations and, and uh, helping establish systems that are gonna support students learning to read. Um, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times. Just one more, oh, one sure. more thing before you switch gears. Sure. One of the things um, 
So when I was in more of a university research-based piece, one of the things we looked at was um, characteristics of high-capacity systems. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things is in a high-capacity system, there's certain characteristics. We've got all this years of research on schools that beat the odds, the role of the principal in that. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is high-capacity systems have one or two initiatives. When I go in a district, they'll go, oh, my goodness, you know, we have right. like 10. And what do you mean? We have to improve SEL. We have to improve, you know, second language instruction. We have to improve math. We have to improve. And they've got this list. And I'm like, look, <laughs> teachers don't have the bandwidth or the capacity. You don't have enough PD days. That's why you're allocating one day of PD this, one day of PD to that. And, and so part of this is getting really clear what our focus is and doing the work behind the scenes, that's the system work, to really think about how do we integrate. So it shouldn't be up to teachers. And the example I'll give is working with a system that had high second language uh, populations. And there are a lot of schools, for example, on southwest side of Michigan um, that have 80% you know, second language learners. Um, it's not just when we think of urban areas. And so one, one district I worked with had, um, they had committed to PSYOP and they had committed to literacy and they also had a math. And I'm like, that's too much. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't that I wanted them to drop literacy or drop um, their second language, the PSYOP program. It's that we had to do integration. So we made a commitment that the second language staff and the literacy staff would always meet and plan together. Um, I'm like, you're hiring these consultants. Mm -hmm. So they required the consultants to meet and plan together. We made a commitment that when um, the literacy coach, we initially identified shared reading, the literacy coach would only go in during shared reading time. The PSYOP coach for second language would only go in during shared reading. We created a common list of five look-fors. And so teachers knew, okay, these are the five things I need to do to have an effective shared reading. And it wasn't, I need to do PSYOP stuff and literacy stuff. These five things integrated all of them. And so that's right. when we talk about system work. I'm talking about nitty gritty, really thinking about clear focus and vision and doing the work behind the scenes to make sure that we're integrating and not siloing things so it's manageable for teachers. Okay, now shift gears. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so um, you mentioned a couple times that you live on Beaver Island or at least part-time uh, on Beaver Island. I just want to ask you that about that experience. Okay, so I consider my home on Beaver Island. I'm temporarily relocated to the Traverse City area. <laughs> Um, Beaver Island is where we've lived for 11 years. That's my home, my life. We get back as much as we can. Mm -hmm. um, we came over here for uh, my son to go to high school here at Traverse City West. The Beaver Island School is amazing. It's remarkable. I was a teacher there. Um, I, uh, uh, the last year uh, my son was there, uh, it had 46 kids, K through 12. <laughs> Um, there are so many wonderful things about the community and the culture. That's where my heart is. Yeah, <laughs> and so you better have a position for me in a couple of years when my son's done with high school, because I want to go back there. Uh, it was the best job I've ever had, kind of doing this kind of consulting work and teaching in the school. Um, that's where my heart is. Um, yeah. But my son, you know, well, I should, I don't. I promised him I wouldn't be talking much about him, but he just needed some different things. So he's here at Traverse City West and involved in fencing and theater and robotics and. Um, you know, there's just stuff that small schools, it works well for some kids because the school's great about providing, mm -hmm. you know, online opportunities and, and even taking coursework. So I have nothing but positive to say about the care and the commitment of the school, but it was a better fit for my son. So we're here temporarily in Traverse City <laughs> during the school year, um, getting back as much as we can. But my life and our world is on Beaver Island. And actually, I just bought a new-to-me kayak to take back. So I have another kayak when friends nice. come to visit. So we're there in the summer. But as soon as my son's done, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I could just imagine you uh, hiking the trails or kayaking around the, the island, thinking about all the great work that, that is happening in schools and, and the work that you're, you're going to be leading. So it seems like a, a great place to recharge. And speaking of that, I'm, I'm also often really interested in how, what other people do to stay sharp, to recharge. Are there, is there anything that you do or authors or researchers that you go to to, to read or take in? Uh, professionally or personally, that, that fill that need for you? I think recharging has two components. One is sort of the personal piece and what I'm sort of getting a better handle on. I mean, it was much easier um, living on Beaver Island because I'd have like an hour break and I'd walk out my front door and go kayaking <laughs> um, um, or go for a walk. But um, I'm increasingly recognizing the need. I, I committed a bunch of things and I had working with schools on Friday and I care so much about really wanting high quality supports for teachers and for schools and systems and I committed to a whole bunch of things that I said I would do for people over the mm -hmm. weekend and then you know I get to the weekend and I just crash um, and I'm I'm really trying to get that better balance and I think that's the struggle when we're working in high needs communities is that um, you know I see teachers coming in at you know an hour before school and saying three hours after and um, you know, we want to do good work. Um, we want to do effective work. And sometimes people are working so hard and not seeing an impact because they're not doing the right work or we don't have the right systems in place. Um, so it's really, you know, I was just thinking this weekend, okay, I think about systems. What are the systems I need to put in place so that I can support the schools that I've committed to in the best way possible? Who do I need to bring on staff that, that can help and support me? Um, and those are things that I think all of us need to think about in terms of, you know, what makes life worth living. It's not about <laughs> with the kids. I see schools that'll say, well, we're going to take recess away. It's like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not about taking recess away and giving them more time like on Lexia. It's really rethinking how we're approaching instruction in schools. And for me, okay. it's kind of thinking hard about doing the quality work I want to do and being able to live and enjoy, you know, my son, my life. So there's that piece right. of recharging. And But you mentioned, like, who do I read? And what I love about being in schools is um, I'm constantly learning from teachers and coaches mm -hmm. and principals. And I've actually got two books right next to me. I'm doing work with Oakland schools and the early literacy consultants and coaches there are reading a book called um, Teaching Black Boys in the Elementary Grades by Alfred Tatum. I just got it in the mail this week because um, aside from my work with them, I'm going to join their book study. Okay. Um, and we're kind of talking about the work of Alfred Tatum and how do we create curriculum that really engages and is meaningful to students and really not kind of teaching, you know, treating lightly, you know, people kind of can use um, uh, responsive instruction or engaged learning in a sort of almost pejorative way, but how do we really deeply create classrooms where kids can see themselves and engage? And then the other one is a lot of my schools, you know, are working on SEL pieces. So a principal mm -hmm. just gave me the book they're reading, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Um, I think it's going to be a hard read. Um, I'm going to um, actually start that um, because, you know, we've got, I mean, all these different schools and I'm constantly mm -hmm. hearing stories of trauma. Um, and I'm also hearing and I go into schools and I see, you know, principals who don't say they don't have time to do instructional leadership work because they're putting out fires or teachers. And, you know, the answer is, again, paying attention to systems and structures. And we've got to think differently. We've got kids in different places. So that becomes even more important that we have a common literacy framework. We have clarity about what we're doing. We create routines. Um, we know who's doing what. We have safe spaces for kids. 
Um, so um, I don't know if I give you a particular author, although mm -hmm. I can tell me you're going to be interviewing Nell Duke. I like everything she puts out. Um, <laughs> And I've known her since graduate school, and she does wonderful work, um, really understanding and looking at the research. Um, but a lot of what I learn is from being in schools and looking at okay. what they're reading and hearing and thinking about. And sometimes it's um, it's hearing what maybe things I don't agree with that I need to unpack and better understand so that I can articulate, okay, here's some pieces of this that make sense. You know, there's some journalists that are people are writing about the science of reading that it's like, okay, well, this is great, but here's the piece you need to critique mm -hmm. about it um, and why. Well, great. Well, I'll have to uh, trade a book list with you at some point. I'm curious to see what else is on your list and to hear about uh, some of the work that you're doing um, in that book study. So I've been talking with Kehlani Dunsmore about literacy and systems to support educators and students. Uh, Kehlani, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I really want to make a point of saying, so we talked about reading as a complex task, but mm -hmm. this is totally doable. Um, this isn't like an insolvable problem. I, I worked with a school um, once that was an F school, going to be shut down. F, it was um, a different state, and they used a, a letter grading system, and it was going to be shut down. And we went from an F to a C in mm. one year. Now, it took uh, took two more years to get up to an A. Sometimes the jump from a, a C to an A is bigger than an F to a C. Mm -hmm. um, but it required, um, it's totally doable for us to change practices. And so I want people to leave understanding that, yes, reading is a complex, um, I think um, there was a, a, an article that said reading is rocket science. Mm -hmm. But but addressing issues of student achievement and engagement is totally doable, but often it requires a mind shift in what we're paying attention to. Um, so this, we can help kids. And I think that's what I want to make sure I communicate right. is that there's times I critique and say, okay, look, this is a complex. We have to you know, invest in these pieces. We have to put supports for teachers in place. But this is totally doable, and a doable in a way that doesn't kill teachers and principals. Yeah. This is really doable. I love that perspective, and that's a great, great uh, point to leave on here. Uh, I want to thank you, Kehlani, for having this conversation and for the years that you've devoted to, to partnering with educators and leaders to ensure uh, better outcomes for students. So thank you. Thank you for the chance to have a conversation. And I, I kind of want to leave with one word, um, mm -hmm. with two words, I guess, hope and joy, oh. is that I want people to feel hopeful and joyful in the work they're doing. And that's what I want for kids, too. And I want them, I think of that kid who's like, I guess if you could teach me to read, I want them to understand that they can learn and grow. And I want them to enjoy and find joy um, in, being, in being in a school system. Well, that's a great, great way to end the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leaders in Education podcast. Please check out our archive for past episodes. And remember, the great thing about learning is that you never have to stop.